Well, Leviticus chapter 8, if you want to join me there as we continue our way through the book of Leviticus together, as we have been looking at this book together, we are learning different things about the worship system, the sacrificial system, and as we come to chapter 8, 9, and 10 now, we begin to see basically, I guess you could call it the inauguration officially of the priesthood. Uh, back in the book of Exodus, God had given instructions to Moses, to Aaron, to his family, to the children of Israel congregationally regarding which family line the priesthood would come from. The Aaronic family line and his sons would be the high priest as well as the uh, other priests that would officiate under the high priest's authority and ministry. We saw instructions there regarding the specific garments, remember, the fancy ornate garments, the breastplate and the ephod and the turban and uh, the different aspects of the priestly garments that they were to have made for them and wear. And now as we come to Leviticus chapter 8, at this point again, Israel's sort of in this one-month holding pattern between Mount Sinai and the beginning of their wanderings in the wilderness as they would make their way towards Canaan the first time. And God giving further instruction regarding the sacrificial system that they would now institute there once the tabernacle has now been constructed and built for them. We saw that in prior chapters, the instructions of how to begin to then conduct these different sacrifices. And and now he's going to actually initiate the priesthood itself. So we sort of have the ordination or the inauguration of the priesthood given to us here in chapters 8 and 9. Things they were instructed back in the book of Exodus, they're now actually implementing them and carrying them out as we come to these particular chapters. So chapter 8 verse 1 begins by saying, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, which we saw made specifically for them, the anointing oil, remember that special compound of specific ingredients that was to be made to anoint all the tabernacle worship implements as well as Aaron and his sons, as well as a bull as the sin offering and two rams and a basket of unleavened bread. And gather, notice, all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So this is a public ordination ceremony. God says, take Aaron and his sons. They were the ones to be, in a sense, ordained or inaugurated to the ministry. And, and this is to be done publicly, notice, in front of the congregation for purposes of identification, for purposes of really authenticating that these are the individuals specifically that God has divinely selected, his authority is upon them, his anointing is upon them, and God wanted the people of the congregation to be able to clearly recognize and identify these are the individuals that God has selected and chosen to officiate in the ministry, to serve in this capacity, that that was clear. So it was to be done publicly. This is a public ordination ceremony. And I think that when an ordination service happens, whether we're ordaining someone as a pastor or uh, you know, recognizing elders within a local congregation. I think it is a wise and a, a spiritually uh, 
uh, implemented principle that we are to do that, that we're to lay hands upon, the Bible says, to pray over them. And again, keep in mind, uh, when that's done, even as it was in this day, as well as in a sense, if we may ordain someone as a pastor or uh, recognize someone as an elder, in a sense, though it's done publicly, we may lay hands on them and pray over them. Uh, in a sense, we're not conferring the power or the enablement for someone to be put into the ministry. All we're, in a sense, doing is recognizing and ratifying what God has already done. I thoroughly, thoroughly appreciate uh, being a part of a, a, a movement of churches with the Calvary Chapel ministry where we understand that philosophically. Uh, that, that, that ordination for ministry is something that's divine. Uh, Jesus calls someone to the ministry. The Holy Spirit ordains and anoints someone for ministry. We, we, we can't do that. Uh, an education or a fulfillment of uh, you know, preparatory courses or whatever. Again, these things can be addendums. They can assist, and certainly they have their place. I'm not belittling them. They have great value and importance. But ultimately, ordination, ratifying, uh, that, that uh, is what we do, but God is the one who does the ordaining. In fact, as you look at this passage of Scripture, it's interesting, Moses, you still see kind of functioning as like the, the covenant mediator here in these things, and he is the one, in a sense, I'm bringing Aaron and his sons through this process and the ordination. And, and Moses, in a sense, becomes a type of Christ in many ways here, beginning to put them into the ministry. You see that he himself is the one, it seems, with the divine authority to do that, to put them into the ministry. And I can't think of how in doing such, really Moses, in many ways, uh, is a type of Christ. Because uh, you know the Bible tells us, in the book of First Timothy, and let me just read this to you as this verse is sort of coming to mind regarding Jesus. First Timothy chapter one verse twelve says this: Paul declaring his own ministry calling says this: I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Again, Paul the apostle understood, and Paul the apostle was a scholarly man. Unlike Peter, who is just a fisherman, who the Bible says of those like Peter and John, Acts 4 says they were unschooled, ordinary men. The idea is they were uneducated, they weren't formally trained. He says, but they had been with Jesus, and yet the Spirit of God anointed them and called them and set them apart to be apostles. Paul the Apostle, understand, was a very scholarly man. He was brilliant. He had studied the Hebrew Scriptures. and But Paul still understood, even despite all that, he says... I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he's the one that enabled me. My enablement, Paul understood, it's not because of my own natural talent or experience or preparation. My enablement, he says, it's divine. Jesus enabled me. The Holy Spirit empowered me. That the, the source of the strength and the power behind Paul's ministry, he understood, had a divine source. And he says, because he is the one who put me into the ministry. Again, only Jesus, in the truest sense, can put a person into the ministry. Now, I understand sometimes people you know, try and put themselves into the ministry, and, and many people have went out when maybe they weren't sent out. In the book of Acts, in chapter 13, says they laid hands on them, uh, Paul and Barnabas, when the Holy Spirit said, separate them unto me for the work to which I've called them to. And it says they laid hands on them, prayed over them, and then it says that they were sent out. It's very different than someone who went out. Sometimes people have went out, if you understand what I'm saying, when they weren't sent out. 
by the Lord. And that makes a very big difference, whether it's as a missionary, whether it's as a pastor, or whatever ministry capacity, we want the Lord's ordination. We want the Lord's calling for the ministry he has for us. And whatever that ministry may be for each one of us, whatever it may be, to realize, Lord, I want you to call me, you to ordain me, you to empower me, and you to put me into the ministry that you have for me and to be the one to open the door and to give me that role and opportunity. And I think in some ways here, Moses, as we look at this again, he in a sense becomes a picture of Christ who puts us into the ministry. As we serve Jesus, he is the one who is officiating and putting us in the ministry when we do, in a sense, what they're doing here in Israel. Uh, we're just sort of ratifying and recognizing what God has already done in someone's life. We recognize it, and we say we're ratifying publicly, congregationally, what we see God has already done in this you know, man's life or this individual's calling or whatever. So here, everyone's now gathered around. Probably the leaders are close to the tabernacle. I can't imagine, you know, two to three million people all being there, but people probably maybe surrounding the hillside and the leaders, the elders are close in near the tabernacle of meeting, observing and watching all this. Verse four says, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And you'll notice that's a repetitious phrase, some 20 plus times throughout these chapters, we see as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Again, they're doing things according to God's directive. They're not just shooting from the hip and doing what seems best to them. They are following clearly God's directive. And when it comes to ministry and calling and service, uh, that's really important because we're his soldier and we are his representative. So uh, we want to be doing things at the command of the Lord, not just the creative ideas of men especially when it comes to ministry and service of God's work. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, notice, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. Now, no doubt Moses says that in some sense in relation to what we've, as I said, already studied back in Exodus 28 and 29. And really what we are now looking at now in Leviticus 8 and 9 is really just the fulfillment of the instructions given back in Exodus 28 and 29. There the Lord commanded them how to set apart the priests. We studied there the very same things we're going to study here. In a sense, it's reiteration and repetition. But this is them now obeying or carrying out the commands and the instructions of the Lord regarding ordaining and initiating the priesthood's ministry and putting it into official practice. So he says, this, what we're about to do, is what the Lord has already commanded us to be done. We're just following God's instructions. And verse 6 says, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and the first thing he did, remember we learned this, is, is Moses washed them with water. So no doubt the water from the, the bronze laver that was there that later on they would wash ceremonially in their hands and so forth as they would be officiating with the sacrifices and making themselves ceremonially clean as well as staying hygienic because of the blood that they would often have on their hands through the sacrificial process. Uh, here, notice again, it doesn't say they took a bath, but it actually tells us, the scripture does, that they were being bathed. <laughs> Again, quite a, a humbling process. They're standing there in a sense that they're publicly somehow being bathed, it seems, by Moses. 
that Moses is washing them. It says that Aaron and his sons were washed with water. Moses brought them out and they were washed with water. So whether Moses was doing this or he had some helpers. So they're standing there and they're actually, in a sense, being bathed in some sense before the people with the washing uh, of the water. Now, as we look at these things and the ordination ceremony here of the priests into their ministry, certainly we need to realize, yes, the high priest and the priesthood pictures in some ways the life of Christ. We understand that. The book of Hebrews teaches us that. But we also need to realize that in the Old Testament, they were given a priesthood from a New Testament perspective, the Bible says that as Christians, we are a priesthood. We see that in 1 Peter. We see that in the book of Revelation, that we are a holy priesthood, uh, th that God has made us, in a sense, a spiritual priesthood. In the same way, the priest served as a, a mediator to represent God to the people. And at the same time, they also represented the people before God through their intercessions and their ministry. The Bible says now that spiritually, yes, Jesus is the high priest. He is the great high priest, but that we, in a sense, are called to be a, a kingdom of priests in a sense where spiritually we function in a priestly ministry. We represent the Lord to the world and we stand in the intercession and the gap to seek to bring people to God as well in that role. So as we look at this ordination of the priests, I think in some ways what's happening here symbolically pictures in a lot of ways what we need in our lives as priests of the Lord, if you would, as Christians, to be effective servants of the Lord. To, in a sense, fulfill our priestly ministry as New Testament Christians to impact our world or to serve in that realm of ministry that the Lord enables and puts us into and the ministry he wants to use us for in the church and among the world. And the first thing I think we take note of as we look at the first thing done here, notice the first step in this ordination ceremony is as they were washed with water. Now, whenever we see being washed with water, in the Old Testament, it's a picture of being washed with the word of God, that the water there represents the word of God. Whenever you see drinking of water, that is symbolic of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. So whenever we see the drinking of water, that's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. But whenever we see being washed with water, that's a picture, in a sense, of the ministry of the Word of God. Again, we see that in the Bible where in Ephesians 5 it says that husbands are to wash their wives in the water of the Word, that they're to be utilizing the Word of God in their marital relationship to help guide their spouse or to you know, help them think through things spiritually. How can a young man keep his way pure, the Bible says, Psalm 119, by living according to your Word? So here, as we look at this, it's a picture of being washed with the word of God. And I think by way of, again, application for us, you see here that one of the most important things right away early on for us to become effective servants of the Lord and to fulfill the ministry that God's given to us as priests in this world or in the role of service he gives to us in the church is that we individually and personally need to be exposed to the power of God's word for our lives. Not in just an intellectual sense, but we need to, in a personal way, 
come into contact with the Word of God, where we let the power and the influence of the Word of God wash over our lives and cleanse from our minds wrong ideas that we have about life and people and what's right and what's wrong and about marriage and about parenting and about the way the world is to function and what is wrong with the world and what's the resolution for the problems in the world is that we need to be people like Ezra. It says of Ezra that, that Ezra studied the word of God for himself and then he obeyed it. And after he studied and obeyed it personally, then he sought to then teach it to others in his life. And I'll tell you, a fundamental thing to become an effective servant of the Lord is to have a good working knowledge of the Word of God, yes, but even more than that, to have a personal love and passion and a personal experience with the Word of God yourself, whereby before you're even thinking about how you can use the Bible to reach someone to tell them about Jesus or take the Bible and rightly divide it and present a good teaching in your children's ministry class or your home Bible study or to preach you know, to a crowd evangelistically or to share the Word of God from a pulpit as a pastor, that first the Word of God would wash over your life. And that you would be in the word of God, letting it wash you and cleanse you and bring you to a place where it's dealing with issues in your own heart and life. And then it's out of the overflow of that that you become a clean, sanctified vessel, ready for the Lord's use because of the personal effect where the washing of the word, in a sense, it's bathed you, it's humbled you a few times. You know, says they're being bathed, it's kinda, but that the word of God, it's washed over you and it, it's, it's knocked some humility into your own heart as it's washed over you and cleansed some of the junk out of each one of our lives personally. And the first thing that happens is they were washed. And then it says, verse 7, that he then put on them the tunic and girded them with the sash, clothed them with the robe, and put on the ephod, which was sort of the, the vest-like thing that they would wear, and girded them with the intricately woven band of the ephod and tied it on him. And then he put on the breastplate, Remember with the 12 stones, the colored stones representing the nation of Israel. And he put within the breastplate the Urim and the Thummim, which seems to be those stones that were used for discerning the will of God for a certain period of time. And he put on his head the turban, and also the turban on its front. He put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the second thing that happens is after they're bathed, then they're dressed. And they then now put on these garments that were specifically prepared for them to wear for identification in their function and their role of service. These colorful, beautiful garments that were made specifically for them to identify them as priests. They're now, in a sense, dressed in those things and, and those things are put on them to ready them for service. And as I look at this, I think a second thing by way of application for our role in ministries of service, it pictures to me how another thing that we need in our lives is also to be equipped and prepared for service. These, they received these garments so that they were then equipped to serve in the way they were supposed to. By putting on these garments, they were then being prepared to function as priests with these proper garments for their particular role of ministry. And the Bible tells us similar things in the New Testament. Romans 13 says that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that we are to put on the armor of God. 
Because you know what? It's a spiritual war. And it's a spiritual battle. And I'll tell you, if you want to do more than just walk with Jesus and actually work for Jesus and have an impact on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that's opposing to it, you are choosing to engage in warfare. So you need to be prepared. You need to be spiritually prepared. You need to be able to put on the armor of God to be equipped to stand against the infiltration, the attacks of the devil and the resistance of the enemy. And there is an important aspect of even just being prepared uh, by way of being equipped for service. The Bible says that the role of a pastor, teacher, and those in ministry is to equip the saints for works of ministry. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Timothy, be prepared for every good work. And I do think that preparation has its place. Certainly, as I said earlier, being called to ministry, put into ministry, ordained spiritually, supernaturally by a divine call of God, that's essential. But I don't discount, nor do I want to, in a sense, belittle the importance of proper preparation. There is a part and place in that. We see that in the Word of God. We, we see servants of God being prepared by God for a season and being prepared. I don't think there's anything wrong to, to study and get a good working knowledge of the Scripture. I think there's great value to, like Paul had Timothy and Titus and those that he mentored and prepared and that served by his side, that got to know his heart, learned his manner of life, his style of ministry, gleaned things as they served in partnership with him, and that was great preparation was on the job training and I think there's value to that I think there's a, a good value to a season of preparation and ways to be equipped and readied for service and here I think we in a sense see that as they're being equipped and made ready for the very ministry that they specifically were called to as priests it goes on to tell us then verse 10 that Moses next step after dressing them took the anointing oil and he anointed notice the tabernacle and all that was in it and he consecrated them. He sprinkled some of that anointing oil, it says, on the altar seven times. So he's sprinkling it around the furnishings of the tabernacle, preparing it to be uh, put into service. He anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and the base to consecrate them, to set it apart for ministry. But look at verse 12 and notice the change of terms. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So the ministry furnishings, the tabernacle, the laver, the altar, I have these two terms circled. Verse 11, the anointing oil was sprinkled on the furnishings, but when it came to Aaron, the actual man who was to serve in the ministry capacity, a sprinkling apparently wasn't enough. <laughs> it says the anointing oil was poured. It wasn't sprinkled. on. This was poured like a flask of oil was poured over his head. And we know that, that, that it was a lot of oil because, again, if you read Psalm 133, where there the Bible uses this allusion to this experience where it says how good and pleasant is it when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil running down the beard of Aaron and onto his garments. And it, it draws from this illusion here, this picture, which shows us that contrary to how we anoint somebody with oil today, you know, if they come forward and we want to anoint you because you're sick to pray over you, we, you know, we might use the olive oil and put a little dabble do you there on your forehead. And usually when you walk away, once you realize nobody's listening, you kind of, you know, do one of these, you get that shiner off your forehead. It wasn't the case here. This was a flask of oil 
poured over his head in a way whereby it ran down his hair, on his face, across and off his beard, dripping off his beard and down his garments, in a sense, saturating him. So he wasn't just being dabbed, he was being saturated with this anointing oil. And again, as we look at the anointing oil, it pictures no doubt what? The Holy Spirit being anointed with the Spirit of God. And notice, when we're going to serve the Lord as a, as a priest in this world, in a dark and sinful and ungodly world, with hard and, and, and brazen and, and, and people who are just, in many ways, just jaded, you better guarantee that it is essential to not just have a touch of the Holy Spirit, but to be saturated to be filled and to be empowered and to be baptized to where your life is saturated with the power of the Spirit of God in order to be able to have an effect upon the world. And if we're going to have an effective ministry whereby when we serve in some capacity or, or whether we you know, share in some capacity or whether we're teaching in some capacity or speaking in some capacity, if we want that to have an impact and an influence where it impacts people powerfully, it's important not that we be trying to function on spiritual fumes. Listen, it's not enough just to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. But Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And he said, you shall receive power to do that. When he says, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, baptizes you, fills you. When you baptize somebody, you immerse them. They're saturated in the water. And we need to be saturated with the anointing and the power of the Spirit where the Spirit of God is poured out upon our lives in great power to have influence and to be effective. Joel chapter 2, even as this was poured upon Aaron's head, Joel 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Again, it's not gender specific. It's not age specific. God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the heart of God. God wants to pour out His Spirit upon your life and anoint and saturate you with the power of His Spirit that you might have an effective influence in that ministry in which He wants to set you into to use you. Verse 13, it says, And then Moses brought Aaron's sons. Also, the same process, put the tunics on them and girded them and put the hats on them as the Lord had commanded. And verse 14, Then the next step, he brought out the bull for the sin offering. And then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering, and Moses killed it. So Moses is actually the one making the sin offering here for the priests to be inaugurated. And he took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and around with his finger and purified the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And then he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys with their fat... And Moses burned them on the altar, but the bull and its hide, its flesh and its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp, notice, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So following the clear instructions, which we've already studied in Leviticus 4 of how to perform a sin offering, notice part of the ordination ceremony and inauguration of the priests being put into their ministry involved a sin offering. And as this sin offering was being offered for Aaron and his sons, 
What was it indicating clearly to all the people in the congregation, even though they have a role conferred upon them by God, even though they have a role of ministry to serve in God's power and God's authority, at the same time, they are still people of flesh and blood just like us. They have the same sin nature as us. They're imperfect just like us. And I think it was not only an indication to the people, look, they're not perfect. They're not superhuman. They're not even more spiritual than you. They're sinful just like all the rest in the congregation. They've just been ordained to serve in this role by God's grace and by God's divine appointment. And I think it was a reminder as well to Aaron and his sons not to ever forget the reality of their own humanity and their own sinful tendencies and weaknesses. And can I just say this by way of application? I think another important part of us preparing and being ready and being effective servants of the Lord involves the same thing in the sense that we need to remain conscious of our own humanity and remain conscious of our own human weakness and sinfulness. God help us. If the Lord affords us an opportunity to serve in some way or gives us a role or we begin to serve in some capacity and we begin to lose touch with the reality that we are made of the same stuff and just like every other person that we're ministering to and that we have the same sinful flesh and that we have the same human weaknesses and that we are sinners saved by grace and that our own humanity can be our absolute quick downfall if we are not careful. And it's so important that we retain that humility and that awareness of our own sinfulness. Verse 18, then, there was a burnt offering. It says they brought out the ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons, again, according to protocol, we've studied these things. They laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses killed it and sprinkled the blood around the altar burned the head and the pieces and the fat, washed the entrails, verse 21, and burned the whole ram on the altar. The whole animal was consumed in a burnt offering. It was a burnt sacrifice for sweet aroma as an offering made by fire to the Lord, had, as Moses, or excuse me, the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, the consecration here, the lies being set apart is what we see happening. And he brought the second ram, verse 22, the ram of consecration. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed it. And he took some of its blood. And notice, he put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And then he brought Aaron's sons, and he repeats the same things with them as they were priests as well. He put some of the blood on the tips of their right ear, on the thumb of their right hands, on the big toe of their right foot. And Moses sprinkled then the blood all around the altar. So here we see, in a sense, them being what? Consecrated or set apart. The burnt offering was an offering of consecration or dedicating one's life completely over to God to be used by Him. And as a part of that process here, it says that the blood was from the sacrifice was put upon the right ear the right thumb, and the right toe. Again, in that culture, the right-hand side was always seen as dominant. Most people were right-handed. It didn't mean you were inferior if you were left-handed, but it was typically the dominant hand. It was seen as that way, the right hand of a person. So again, what's being pictured here symbolically as God applies the blood to the ear, to the hand, to the foot, the idea is God saying, listen, I want your ear to be fully consecrated and dedicated to me. God's saying to them, if you're going to serve me as a priest, 
If you're going to function in ministry for me, if you're going to be used as my servant, then God says, then you have to have an ear that's attuned to my voice. And your ear has to be more willing to listen to my voice than any other voice out there. You need to hear my voice and obey my voice before you obey your own thoughts and the voices in your own heart and head. You need to hear my voice and obey my voice before the voices of the opinions and the ideas of anyone else around you. God's saying you need to have an ear that is attuned to my voice and be willing to obey me. Essential to serve the Lord. That we have an ear that wants to hear his voice and that obeys him. It's a helpful thing when you serve God and you're someone who listens to the Lord. And you follow what the Lord says. It takes courage to do that. And it also takes a sensitivity to pay attention and make sure you're hearing the Lord. And not just listening to your own ideas or the thoughts of other people. Which there are always plenty of those things going on. Would you agree? But God wants wants their ear. And their hand, why did they anoint the thumb? Well, because the hands represented your work and what you did. And the idea is God saying, I want your, I want your work to be fully dedicated to me. I want your hands, the things that you're involved in, I want them dedicated to me that I can use them for my purposes, to do what I would want to do. And the foot, of course, speaks of their toe there, spoke of the, where they would go. It spoke of their steps. God says, I want your steps to be dedicated and consecrated to me. I want to direct your steps. I don't want you to direct your own steps. I want you to go where I tell you to go and to walk where I tell you to walk. So God says, I want your ear and I want your work and service committed to me and I want to be able to direct your steps where you go and how you serve and where you don't go and what you do. And it was a picture of their life being committed and dedicated to God symbolically as they were anointed with the blood in these three different areas. And it's a reminder to us again too that if we want to serve the Lord effectively, then the same thing needs to apply to us. To serve the Lord effectively, we need to live set apart in dedication to Him. We need to have our life fully committed to Him. There, if, if you want to be effectively used by the Lord, there needs to come in a sense, in a symbolic way, in a spiritual way, where you say, you know what, Lord? Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Lord, I want, to, I want to obey your voice. I want to know your voice and I want to be the person who follows you and I, I want to be someone who listens to the Lord in the way that I serve and, and how I function. And, and Lord, my hands, my feet, they're yours. Wherever you want me to go and whatever you want me to do, Lord, I want to dedicate, I want to give my life over to you. I may not be the most talented person, Lord. I may not be the most intelligent person. There are plenty more intelligent people, plenty more talented people. But Lord, I'm dedicated. I'm committed. I'm consecrated over to you. Here's my life. Use it however you want to use it. And that becomes a very powerful tool in the hands of God. Verse 25 says, Then Moses took the fat and the fat tail and all the entrails and the fatty lobe attached to the liver. Again, all the inward parts now of the sacrifice. And look down in verse 27 what it does. It says, He put all these, very interesting, in Aaron's hands. And then he weighed them as a burnt off or wave offering before the Lord. And then Moses took them back and burned them on the altar. So before Moses takes the inward parts of the animal and burns them, as typical protocol again would lead him to do, notice what he does here. He actually takes the inward parts of the animal. And verse 27 is what you want to take note of there. That he, a very unique thing here. He puts those things 
into Aaron's hands and his son's hands and lets them kind of hold them for a minute. This, this bloody mess. It just, here, hold this for a little bit. So they're holding the entrails and the liver and the inward parts of this animal, this bloody mess in their hands. Here, it's very interesting. The Hebrew for this term, the ram of consecration, up in verse 23, the Hebrew for that term there literally means to fill the hands. And, and it's almost as if you can sense here that what God is doing is he's symbolically reminding Aaron and his sons who are going to serve in this ministry as priests, listen, I am putting a stewardship of the things of the sacrifice and worship and ministry. I'm putting a stewardship, and in a sense, I'm putting these things into your hands. I'm entrusting you with these things. As a stewardship, Aaron, as a stewardship, as the sons of Aaron. Yeah, I'm putting, yeah, and, and sometimes it's going to be a bloody mess. Sometimes what you're going to have to do and what you're going to have to deal with, it's not going to be all nice and clean. It, it, it's going to be like a bloody mess. People's lives messed up, falling apart, blood and guts. And, and But get used to it. But also reverently realize, I'm putting that into your hands and letting you hold it as a stewardship from God. You know, Paul tells us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 4, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. So important when we serve the Lord in whatever way he lets us to that we realize that the stewardship of ministry is placed into the servant's hands. That the Lord puts that stewardship into our hands. And that's a serious stewardship. And sometimes it's a challenging stewardship. Sometimes it, if you want to help people, it gets a little messy. It gets a little messy. And if you're not willing to get a little bit messy, you're probably not willing to really help people. Because lives are messy. Spiritual you know, influence, it can get messy sometimes. But you've got to be willing to say, all right, Lord, whatever you want to put in my hands, I'll take it as a stewardship. I'll be serious. I'll, I'll take it as a strong responsibility. And I'm willing to hold it and to use it however you would have me to following your command. Look with me in verse 31. It says, And then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of consecration offerings as I've commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days so for an entire week they were to stay within the confines sort of of the compound of, of where the tabernacle was until the days of your consecration are ended for seven days verse 33 he shall consecrate you and as he has done this day so the lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you therefore Again, notice the emphasis. You shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night. You can get to go home and go to bed and then report back to the tabernacle in the morning. They had to stay there. Yeah, just 24 hours a day. Stay there day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that you may not die. That's pretty serious. God was serious about this ministry calling. For so I have been commanded so Aaron and his sons did all things that's always smart 
that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So notice one final thing here in, in this chapter that as a part of the ordination of the priesthood, putting them into their ministry and role of service is that after the other things were done, Moses then looks to Aaron and his sons and he says, okay, now you need to remain within the courtyard. Remember the temple, the tabernacle had a courtyard with a linen fence around it. And look, you need to remain in a sense in the precincts in the tabernacle precincts here for the next seven days, day and night. You can't go home to your families. You can't go and do common and ordinary things. You need to stay there alone, set apart from other people in the community, in the congregation, in the quiet confinement of the tabernacle area by yourself for a seven-day period. That was a part of their ordination ceremony. Now, as I look at that, I can't help but to think how that in a beautiful way would allow them to do what? To have seven days, day and night, to just quietly be alone with God. They'd have a whole lot of time, no doubt, to pray and to think and to just be undistracted, to not be entertaining everyday affairs. It was time for them at the onset of their ministry early on to just be alone with God, detached from the world, and just get used to being in the presence of of God. And I'll tell you, as I look at this, I think maybe even above some of the other things we've talked about, that this is a very, very critical thing for our lives if we want to be effective in serving the Lord. If we want to be useful in ministering to this world and serving in the opportunities God gives to us, is that we need to be someone, if we want to be useful to the Lord, who is willing to recognize the value and the importance of being alone with God. And understanding the importance of spending time in God's presence, privately, personally, whether it's on a daily basis, whether it's on a periodic, uh, you know, kind of getting away and detaching somehow. But listen, there is no substitute there is no substitute for time alone with God. No amount of human energy, no amount of talent, no amount of charisma, no amount of, of, of none of these other things. None of those other things are a sufficient substitute for just time alone with God. Spending time in God's presence speaking to the Lord, seeking Him in prayer, letting Him tune your ear to the voice of the Lord, letting Him impress upon your heart the things that He wants you to do with your hands, letting Him make clear to you by the impressions He puts on your heart or the things He says to you through His words, what are the next steps that your feet are to pursue next? What are the next steps that you are to go towards because guess what? If you're serving the Lord as the priests were, you're having a direct and very powerful influence upon all the other people whom you're following. So there is no substitute for time alone with God. Hey, can I encourage you, if you want to be useful for the Lord, that you seek to develop the discipline of learning how to get alone with the Lord? 
Spend time alone with God. It's valuable. It was something that was important in the New Testament ministry in the early church as well. Remember in Acts chapter 6 where it says that the, the church had been beginning to grow and it came to that crisis moment where the apostles said it's not good for us. It's not good for us to, in a sense, deviate from the word of God in prayer to wait on tables. Not that they were above waiting on tables. That wasn't the point. But they realized we only have so much time. We can only do so much in a day. And they realized if we are being consumed, waiting on tables and handling practical things, then we're going to begin to neglect, they said, the word of God in prayer, which they knew was a valuable, important thing for the role that they had been given as apostles and leaders in the church to be able to set the spiritual direction for the people in the church and to teach them the word of God effectively with anointing and accuracy and to be able to pray and seek God for help for people and to be intercessors in the things of the spirit and to be able to counsel and help people in the ways that so they said listen it wouldn't be good for us to neglect so they said how about you establish remember it was like a group of deacons and they said and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the word of god in essence they were saying we'll devote ourselves to being alone with god making sure that we take time to be and, and i always find it very interesting that they first said we'll devote ourselves to to prayer and the Word of God. I love to study. I love to read the Bible like you, I hope. That's why you're here on a Wednesday evening studying through the book of Leviticus. And it's very easy for me to spend lots of time studying the Bible. The thing I have to discipline myself to do as a man and as a minister not only is to spend time in prayer with the Lord from a devotional perspective just as a Christian, but to realize part of my calling, part of my being liberated to serve the Lord full time with my life is also that I have to discipline myself to say part of my role is to go sit alone and spend time with God and to pray and to realize I'm not called to just be a Bible study machine, but I'm also called to devote myself to prayer to intercede and to pray for the people of the flock of God that he's entrusted to my care to serve and to minister to, to be able to listen to people's needs and then actually bring their needs and in intercession before the throne of God and to pray for the Lord's wisdom and direction of how to adequately care for people and help people. I love what, what, second, uh, what it says in Samuel where, where Samuel makes this statement as a leader of Israel. He says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That has haunted me. I used to have it written over my office when I was pastoring in New York. I used to have it written on my wall right in front of my face because I could get very you know, consumed with phone calls and counseling people and, and studying for Bible studies, and, and, but I had to discipline myself to at times engage, walk out of my office or go to the other side of my office and get on my knees and spend time in prayer or go somewhere else in the church building and just spend time in prayer. But it's critical. It's essential. And I love this beautiful picture of seven days, stay there, spend time alone with God because Aaron and your sons, that's important. You've got to be alone with God because as you're alone with God and you learn to value his presence and be in his presence, things happen. Things happen. And one of the wonderful things that happens is you then begin to be experiencing the Lord for yourself. And that's then what makes you effective and radiate the fragrance of Christ and the power of God from your own life. Because we then radiate the very presence of the one that we've been in. 
It's kind of like a cold. You can't give someone a cold if you don't have it, right? You can't impact someone with the presence of God if the presence of God isn't something that you're experiencing in your own life. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray together. We're just going to close out there for this evening.